I just wanted to say I don't patronize bunny rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Cast Recording, a Starcatcher podcast. Starcatcher is a community-based Jerusalem theater company, and this season we're putting on the classic Sondheim musical, Into the Woods. I'm Nuria Levy, an assistant director at Starcatcher, and each episode I'll be speaking with members of the Starcatcher cast and crew about musical theater in general, and Into the Woods in particular, and giving you a behind-the-scenes look at the production. Join us for just a moment in the woods. This week's episode is Witches Can Be Right, Giants Can Be Good, in which we'll talk about heroes, villains, and the ethics of Into the Woods, featuring special guests here Ellie Greenblatt, Halel Hanoch, and Danny Friedman. Follow Starcatcher on social media to get more information about our production. Hi everyone, welcome back. Hi! Hi. Uh, we're really excited to get into our third episode of the podcast and to talk about heroes and villains this week. So I wanted to start with a question about heroes and villains in general. Before we get into the woods, what would you say defines a hero and what defines a villain? Or in other words, when you think about a hero or you think about a villain, what are the characteristics that come to mind? Nuria, I think we do have traditional definitions from literature or from theory of narrative of what a hero or a villain is. Traditionally, the hero is a protagonist and the villain is someone who works against or creates some kind of conflict or hardship for the protagonist. And I think they were each coded with certain moral behaviors or things that they're known for. So the hero would be uh, morally good, they would be kind, they would be nice, which is a very loaded word for Into the Woods. And the villain would be motivated by immoral behaviors or desires, but often they're also just sort of mean and cruel and violent, I think, uh, if we think of classic villains. I was just thinking about heroes last night during a political conversation with my father, which we won't get into now, but we were sort of talking about heroes and this idea of saving the day and having someone who is more capable than anyone else and uh, everyone else depends on them. It reminded me of, I believe it's Barbara Kruger, the artist, who has a great uh, piece of art that says, we don't need another hero, and sort of this like feminist, postmodern take on like masculinity. I'll just describe it for a second. It's a little boy and a little girl. It's sort of this like uh, a photograph or like a style of like a poster. And the little boy is flexing his muscle and the little girl is pointing at it and looking at it and admiring it. And then it says in big with this like red banner, we don't need another hero. Yeah, and I think it's sort of contrary to this image of a superhero, right? Like Superman or Batman that come in and save the day at the last minute and the story is all about them. And instead, maybe it's pointing at the damaging effects that this kind of culture might have on our society. It reminded me of another, something I heard about team leading, that it's actually very bad for a team leader or a leader in general to be a save the day type of personality because then anyone who works under them is dependent on them. They can't 
bring themselves to find a solution for anything because you're always sort of depending on this hero. And we can talk more about this, but I think the most uh, direct connection maybe to the to Into the Woods is the mocking of the princes, right? The princes that are these classic heroes that come to save, to, to be the person that we can point to and admire, and it just becomes ridiculous. I really like this idea that you're talking about, and you also mentioned something about the postmodern. And to me, I think what really complicates the definitions of hero and villain is that today we're so used to the post and post-post modern twists on all of these archetypes or narrative structures. So it's much more likely today to see a film or a TV series that's about an anti-hero or an anti-villain. Um, Someone who turns out to be something different than when we what we thought at the beginning, or they have many sides to them. Yeah, absolutely. So all of the villains today are getting redemption arcs, right? And we're seeing the world from their perspective, or at least they're the main figure of the story, even though morally or in terms of behavior, it's much more complicated. Whereas classic heroes are sort of seen as boring or strange, or some, there's something foreign about this behavior of being an upstanding nice, uh, save-the-day sort of protagonist. And it would be very hard to kind of think of a contemporary example of a story that's just sort of straightforward about a hero that's just sort of <laughs> a good guy or a good girl who's just trying to be nice to everyone else, and that's the story. It seems like we're in a period where that seems impossible. It's foreign to us. Halal, you mentioned Superman, and when I was thinking about, you know, what comes to my mind as classic examples of a hero. And the first thing that came to my mind is Superman and then a more contemporary version of him, of Captain America in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I think, yeah, Elia, I agree with what you said, that these kinds of heroes are just not as interesting to us anymore in where we are at the moment. And another example that I thought of in my head while you were talking is from Harry Potter, which has, you know, theoretically a very clear-cut definition and separation of good versus evil and these different forces that are battling against each other. But in the very first book and the very first movie, and we're talking about the 90s, not really yet where we are today with every story begins with a villain who is un misunderstood, but <laughs> Voldemort, right, the epitome of evil, says to the 11-year-old Harry Potter, there is no good or evil, there is only power, and those too weak to seek it. And he introduces this new aspect of the relationship between heroes and villains, which is power. Who has the power and who has the ambition for power? Because I think oftentimes the villain is characterized by their ambition for whatever. If you look at Jafar, he wants to be sultan. If you look at I don't know, the Wicked Witch of the West, she wants to have power over Dorothy. And the hero is usually the more, classically, the more innocent, the more selfless, the more immune to these kinds of ambitions. But I think today we are re-examining ambition and what it means to be ambitious, and is it always an evil trait? I do want to qualify what I said before in some of what we're saying now and not give the impression that, uh, you know, 
adding complexity to villains or sort of creating this idea that every story has two sides is something new. I think if we go back, you know, to classic literature, since the beginning of time, we have looked at heroes as complex figures and, you know, um, Odysseus, or if you think about Greek tragedy, the idea of a tragic flaw of a hero who's the protagonist, who has many good qualities, who has talent, but also has a tragic flaw is something as old as time. And from the other side, a villain or a more evil character who also calls to understand their perspective, there's something very seductive or powerful about their point of view, that is also not something invented in the late 21st century or by Marvel uh, by any means. But it does seem like our culture is in a moment of fascination with redemption arcs for characters and with messy storylines where everything's bad, everyone's evil, everyone's powerful, hungry. And if you're just like a good, nice person, there's no way for you to survive. Sad, unfortunately. (laughs) Just to your point, Noria, about tying power into this, I'm going to go back to Barbara Kruger because I think that's has very much to do with her art and thinking about who has power, who has the ambition for power, in this case, from a gender perspective. And also I was going to say about, again, tying back to Into the Woods, I think we do look a lot at this idea of who has the power, right? So the witch has power but loses it, and in a way she doesn't have power because she wants someone else's child, right? So each person sort of has something that, they have power over someone else in some way. And when does that make them a hero? When does that make them a villain? I think we see that throughout all of the show. Danny, who's your sort of classic example of a villain? Who's your favorite villain, like from Disney or from any kind of fantasy films, maybe? Life. No, that's an interesting question. And I don't have a clear-cut answer to it. And that may be because when you say, oh, who's your favorite villain? I'm like, well, but... Remind me again who the villains are. Like, I have to think it at stories and films and books that I know and be like, all right, he's actually the villain. Would that be a, a good answer to your question? But I don't actually have one. I don't think there's a villain that I can think of that whose ambition for power or uh, pseudo-evil traits I find most fascinating. Do you have a favorite hero? No, not either, actually. And and it's the same thing. I'm like, wait, but who are the heroes again? Mary Poppins versus capitalism. That's a good one, right? <laughs> so let's get more into the woods and talk specifically about what happens with heroes and villains in the show. Obviously, as Halel already alluded, there's no clear-cut binary between good and evil between a hero and a villain but are there any characters that for you fit one category more than the other can either be described as a hero or a villain or do you think that they are all a little bit of both i think before you even start thinking and separating them into hero villain categories it's important to remember that uh, it gets confusing even before that because the real question is who is the main character of Into the Woods, right? Usually the hero in a classic fairy tale would be the main character in Cinderella. It's Cinderella. In Jack in the Beanstalk, it's Jack. 
but in Into the Woods, it's not so easy to decide whose story it is that you're following and therefore who you would expect to be the main character. It's just as plausible to say that the witch is the main character of the story because her spell is the one that creates this connection between everyone as it is to say that Little Red is the main character or that the baker and his wife are the main character. So already we're in kind of tricky, murky territory before we even think about who's moral or immoral or nice or good and what's the difference. I would argue that probably the baker and the baker's wife could be thought of as the main characters if only because they're the ones invented to kind of put the rest of the characters together. And if any character I can describe as closest to hero in behavior, it would be the baker. There's not a scene that I can think of where he shows anything immoral or sides that, that are regrettable, um, which his wife does. Uh, moments in the woods can be thought of as her, her non-hero um, aspect, and the baker doesn't go through that at any point. Well, he does lie to Jack he manipulates a young child not just young but like very impressionable uh, and he manipulates him to get what he wants and I think assaults Red he assaults Red right he, they're small <laughs> moments they're not as clear cut as murder or you know all infidelity infidelity these kinds of things but they're much more nuanced moments where he decides to be selfish in the moment a little mm. girl should not be taken advantage of and you can't steal her coat just because you need it and in the moment he decides to do that because his own selfish need overpowers whatever else is going on so I don't think that I would necessarily put him in that category I think in the end it's a matter of degrees right you have to create this spectrum of terrible things that everyone does and think about <laughs> is locking a maiden in a tower worse or better than stealing a coat from a child is worse or better than stomping on someone's mother or sister or father uh, is worse than accidentally killing an old lady because you're aggressive and you push her to the ground like are all of those in the same category or do we start kind of parsing it i think we can all agree that the wolf would be the end of the spectrum at the evil side the witch is pretty evil in some ways. So I say that the wolf would be the closest to that side of the spectrum. And even that, the witch gives him not even, it's not exactly a redemption, but when Red is blamed for having killed him, it's like, oh, but he's ju he was just a wolf. And the witch says, ask a wolf's mother, which doesn't necessarily redeem him, but gives a very postmodern perspective of, even the evil has people he loves and cares about and people that care about him. Yes, absolutely. If, if the wolf is to blame for, you know, just being a wolf and being a predator and eating grandmas and little girls, is that necessarily more shocking and more violent than a human who doesn't even need to feed, but like for fashion, you know? Today, that's like the, the modern way of looking at it, but like making a coat out of a wolf, there's something very shocking about that moment. And it does make you wonder. So it doesn't absolve the wolf of his villainous behavior, but it does sort of open up that question of degrees again. I want to add a third 
category, maybe, if we had heroes and villains. I think in Into the Woods, there's also victims. So if there is a hero, a villain who's trying to do something bad to someone, and a hero who's saving them or doing something good, I think there's also this other category of victim. Who is being hurt? Hurt. (laughs) Who's being hurt, exactly. And also, how do they use their victimness for better or for worse? To that point, and also I was thinking about it when you were talking about power before, I wanted to bring the example of Cinderella and her stepfamily. Because when we start the show, Cinderella is clearly a victim of her family. She is also presented as one of the heroes in the opening number. We are supposed to empathize with her. But when she gets her wish and she gets what she wants... It's not that she becomes a villain, but she, in Act 2, holds power over her family. She may not have malicious intent, but they become victims of her power. Whether it's the uh, sisters who are blinded by the birds, or the stepmother who has to leave her home when the giant comes and doesn't have protection anymore. And you can see that the power dynamic has shifted. So whether that has to do with villain or hero... I agree it's maybe more of that third category of victimized um, and someone who causes the harm. Um, And again, I I don't always ascribe malicious intent to it, so I wouldn't necessarily call them a villain. But I do think that that's an interesting power shift to also look at. I think the the issue with blindness and the birds is a really interesting one because uh, there are two points in the narrative where one character blinds another. The witch blinds Rapunzel's prince and the birds blind Cinderella's sisters. And in both cases it has to do with metaphoric blindness coming to fruition or or being expressed uh, as literal blindness, right? The sisters are blind to Cinderella's pain and therefore they are punished in the same way. And because it happens through the birds, we don't ascribe to Cinderella any responsibility for this action. It's sort of like, oh, well, you know, it happens. Birds come down from the sky uh, and blind people. What's she to blame? She's always been nice, good, good, nice, all of that. But in the world of fairy tales, of course, these, you know, animals, these characters that follow along with heroes, they're an expression of their inner desires, right? So if you think about it in that way, it's almost like Cinderella is conjuring these birds to act out her own aggression, her own desire to punish her sisters. It just as well could have been, you know, come birds, come from the sky and blind my sisters. And then how then would we have looked at Cinderella? Would we still think she was absolved and, you know, this classic typical hero? Not really. Well, in the second act, Cinderella does exactly that to the giantess. What happened by itself from the bird's intent, supposedly in the first act, Cinderella then thinks of, is reminded of, and summons the birds to blind the giantess, which is as violent as we we expect that whole scene to be. With the men on the side being uh, the violent ones with a stick, she does it through the birds, but she's just as violent and part of that murder of the giantess. Yeah, I came off as a Cinderella apologist, but I do not support her violence through birds. Um, And I do agree (laughs) that they are an extension of her deepest desires. 
So I want to retract my answer to the most hero or least villain character, and maybe Rapunzel is a better example, a more fitting example for the most hero end of the scale, because she's done nothing wrong to anyone, and she's only a victim of many people's choices. But again, it's the separation between victim and hero, I think, because Rapunzel is 100% the largest victim, in my opinion, um, of this story, but does she do anything to make herself qualify as a hero, really? She's pretty. She I, sings nice. I think that's a good question to ask her, because she isn't quite a hero, but maybe she never had a chance to be that, because she, she's not given it. Her story and her backstory doesn't give her any agency to, to do anything to anyone. She's stuck in a tower. She couldn't save someone even if she wanted to. I mean, just to play devil's advocate, I do agree with you that of the characters, she's the most innocent and hurts the least amount of people. But the show does do a lot to give us the witch's perspective and to humanize her. And from that perspective, Rapunzel hurts the witch emotionally because she promised her certain things and she disobeyed her. And this goes back to the origins of the fairy tale where the witch realizes that Rapunzel has been meeting the prince because she finds out that she's pregnant, right? Her dress doesn't fit or something like that. And so, first of all, in terms of the moral that the original fairy tale is trying to tell us, it's like, don't let boys sneak into your window and get you pregnant. But also listen to your parents because their lessons are important uh, and if you, you know, go off the path, open your window, lose your virtue and so forth, you will be punished for it. So I think, you know, both from the traditional perspective and from the modernized sort of, you know, the mother is heartbroken about this loss. There is hurt there, though, of course, not at the level of swallowing a grandmother. So I want to move on to this issue of morality or ethics. Let's talk a little bit about how the show views ethics in human actions, or more specifically, what does it have to say about ethical decision-making? Well, I'm sure we're going to discuss this further, but I think the message is a very postmodern one in there are no ethics, everything's relative. I think that may be the strongest point that comes through in The Last Midnight, the witch. She spells it out clearly, if it wasn't clear to us from the use of the words good and bad, uh, and right throughout the show, the witch really spells like clearly before she disappears and kind of doesn't partake anymore in what she thinks is kind of a lose-lose situation because everything's immoral and, and so the moral choice is immoral because it has bad consequences. When she chooses to disappear, she chooses to, to disengage from that moral decision and kind of leave it up to whatever terrible choice they will make because she doesn't believe that any choice is a moral one. It's interesting what you're saying, Danny, and I've certainly seen a lot of research about Into the Woods that analyzes this postmodern ethics. And certainly I think that the show works at deconstructing a lot of our concepts about morality, about a lot of our concepts about archetypes and what we've been saying about who's the hero, who's the villain. Uh, and it can leave you with this sort of 
cynical feeling that nothing matters, right? You can be good, you can be bad, you can be poor, you can be rich. Everyone's a terrible person. But I'm I'm choosing to believe there is... How is that not your conclusion, Yaeli? (laughs) It's my conclusion in life, but it's not my understanding of the show. Even, you know what, even when we did Chicago, which is a very cynical show, we found a way to believe in something, even if it's aesthetics. <laughs> you got to believe in something. But I think in this case, Zondheim and the Pine are doing something a little bit different. They start by deconstructing, you know, pulling the rug under our feet. But I think at the end, there is an idea or a sort of sketch out of a different morality it's not no one is alone, you know, let's give each other a hug and everything will be okay. But it is in a way, and I, I think it has to do with the structure of selfish wishes versus unselfish wishes. And the show starts with everyone pursuing their own desires and in different ways and on different scales, being willing to sacrifice other people or hurt other people to get those wishes and ends with something a little bit different, right? The words repeat, I wish, I wish, but their meaning is a little bit different. And of course, I'm not inventing this. This is something that Zondheim has spoken about and has said that uh, the wishes become community wishes. It's not each person on their own path. It's something that they want together and that they want for each other. And that to me is a, is a powerful moral message. And it's not this anarchy of, you know, pursue power because nothing matters. That's, it's the opposite. It's let's choose uh, family. Let's choose each other. Another thing that comes up for me in the show in this question of ethics is how can we relate to one another as human beings in a way that's honest and good and with good intentions and not only good intentions, but also good actions. (laughs) A story that comes to mind that I was just reminded of and I have to admit that I don't remember if this is a story that me and my father would make. We would have these stories we would make up on our way home from ballet, and then we would tell them again and again because they had to do with the path, which it suddenly sounds feels so relevant for this show, but um, that would have to do with something we would see, and there were like all these parts of it. So I don't remember if it was part of the story or if it was a recurring dream. It was definitely a recurring dream in which I have a medical emergency. Someone next to me has a medical emergency, and I need to decide how to get them to the hospital, and I need to steal a car. And, like, the whole dilemma in the dream slash story is, is it ethical to steal the car to take someone to the hospital? And not only is the dilemma about stealing the car, but it's also about me not having a driver's license and not... (laughs) <laughs> being able to Whoa. legally drive the car. Anyway, I'm just thinking of this as we're talking about personal interests and communal interests and doing something wrong for something that could be good. I feel like I could still have that dream tonight. Halal, your dream or made-up story is actually a perfect example of a philosophical experiment called the trolley problem. Anyone who's seen the series The Good Place, which I highly recommend, will know what I'm talking about. But for those who don't, it's a story that was raised in 1967 by Philippa Foote and then dubbed The Trolley Problem by Judith Jarvis Thompson in 1976. And it presents the situation of 
a trolley whose driver has lost control and you can there are five people on the track and the trolley is about to hit them you have the power to divert the trolley to another track so that it only kills one person and then your choice is whether to let the trolley continue on its current route and it kills five people or to divert it onto another track and then it kills one person. And it raises all kinds of moral and philosophical questions, but there are, then there are variations of this problem, right? Because it's easiest in this situation to say, okay, I, I divert it to the next track. It's better to kill one person than to kill five. But then the question becomes, but what if you know that one person? Like that person is a family member or a person that you know. But I think it's something that as a philosophical question can apply to Into the Woods as well of, how many people do you hurt along the way or when the choice is between two bad things, which is the path that you take? Or one giant versus the village or the city, right? I'm or saying Jack. you have to choose between one child, Jack, oh. or, a, or a giant. And the show does a really good job in complicating that and suggesting that you can't just say, well, giant equals villain. I think they feminize the giant in that situation to kind of emphasize that point. It's not kind of this neutral thing. It's a wife who has lost her husband, uh, maybe a mother figure who is in pain. And, like, and she's right about her revenge, I guess. Like she's not blaming some innocent victim. She's blaming the person who she is the victim of. This all makes me think of another issue here, which is hurting others or creating pain for no good reason. And I think we have a couple of examples of that in the show. Uh, the first that comes to mind is the witch and the baker's father and mother uh, and this whole disproportional vengeance. Losing your shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, stealing a child and cursing them uh, with infertility because they stole some cabbages and lettuce and arugula and all of that. <laughs> um, something about the disconnect between the crime and the punishment feels very jarring. But then another example of that is Jack, who doesn't seem totally in control of his actions, but like killing the giant and, and chopping down the, the tree, the beanstalk, uh, and stealing things. And, you know, all of his actions have enormous repercussions for everyone else in that world. And their motivations were not as strong as some of the other character motivations. I want to play devil's advocate now for the witch. Because I was thinking recently about why this overreaction to stealing her vegetables or her beans. And recently I thought, well, maybe it's because they're magic and she knows that the rest of the people can't use magic in a safe way. So in a way, it's not a revenge as much as it is protecting the village, the people, and she can use her powers in a way that's more appropriate. I think there's one more villain in the story that we haven't mentioned, uh, which is very typical because it's sort of a secret villain or someone that you don't expect to be associated with that idea. And that's the narrator of the story. And it's very cleverly sort of crafted into 
the the story to open our eyes to how the narrator can also be perceived as this really cool, horrible person. But this is sort of a move that uh, when you read a lot of modernist and postmodernist literature, you're kind of used to this kind of breaking of the fourth wall and seeing the narrator is a master manipulator or is a puppeteer. But if you think about it, the person who's really creating all of this suffering, all of this pain, is the person writing the story or reading out the story. And he can choose if to stop uh, or to keep going or to make it worse or to laugh at their pain. And ultimately, everything sort of pours into his hands and his voice. And it makes him very shockingly cruel in some sense. I like what you're saying, Yaeli, and I think it's cool that the moment in which the narrator gets killed by his own characters is the scene when he takes a step back more so than any other scene from the story and the scene that he just described in which the moral, um, do we give Jack to the giant, do we kill the giant, arises and he takes a step back and he starts explaining to the audience. It's an interesting, interesting to, to think of the moral dilemma and so on. And then the characters turn against him. It's when he patronizes and kind of has just used them to, to think of this um, interesting experimental thought. And then that's when it kind of bites him in the ass, which is a, a really interesting um, thing to do to, to the narrator. Well, everyone hates a philosopher, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> time for a new segment on the podcast quickly becoming our favorite segment can't see the woods for the trees this is a very text heavy show and it can be easy to miss some of the nuances so we're going to take this opportunity to have a bit of a deep dive into the words and do some textual analysis we're going to take a look at two random lines from the show and see if we can find any connections we wouldn't necessarily have thought of otherwise this segment is inspired by the podcast harry potter and the sacred text which employs many different methods of this kind of textual analysis it's especially exciting for us today because we finally have our scripts. Woo! <laughs> so they're so heavy. Nuria, you cannot imagine the box that came in the mail. I I couldn't even lift it. I had to get help from two people to move it around. These scripts are so big and so heavy, but we're very excited to have them. And so today, I don't need to look up quotes on WikiQuote, but we can do this the more old-fashioned way. So, Hallel, pick a number between 1 and 201. 86. Okay, Danny, please open your script to page 86. Yaeli, close your eyes and put your finger on a page somewhere. The line is, he's a very smart prince. Ooh, mm. he's a very smart prince. So, Danny, can you tell us where the line is from and the context? He's a very smart prince. Well, that's the first line of Steps of the Palace, which is Cinderella's big song in Act One. Uh, she's just come back from the ball. She gets stuck in the stuff on the steps that the prince laid for her. And she starts by explaining that she, the, having run twice, the prince prepared and laid this stuff for her to get stuck on the steps for him to come find her. Great, so that's our first quote. For our second quote, Yaeli, please pick a number from 1 to 201. 22. 22. Hello, please open your script to page 22. Do you hear the pages flipping? Just listen to this. Ah, a physical <laughs> script. Um, Nuria. Okay, I'm going to close my eyes. 
Okay. okay. The line is to go to the festival. <laughs> well, well. Okay. Halal, can you tell us where the line is from? Sure. So it's actually also Cinderella's line, interestingly enough. Um, we're in the prologue, and Cinderella is telling us why she is going into the woods to go to the festival. Our first line was, he's a very smart prince. And our second line is, to go to the festival. So the first thing that strikes me about these two lines, as Halal said, they're both said by Cinderella. And for me, they're a little bit of two sides of the same coin of her wish. Because it's interesting that when we first meet Cinderella, she says nothing about the prince. She's not going into the woods to meet the prince. She is going to go to the festival. She wants to go to this event. And in the version that we get of her story, it's almost as if she meets the prince by accident and never means to attract his attention and never has never had the desire to meet the prince and, and fall in love with him. And I feel like once she goes to the festival and finally meets him, she has this moment of like, oh, there is this man here and he is maybe not what I expected. I maybe didn't expect him to be a very smart prince, which I don't know... It, it, I'm still on the fence about what she really means by smart, because when she says smart, to me, it's not necessarily a compliment, but rather he's a little bit sneaky and cunning and like, oh man, you know, he, he managed to outsmart me. Yeah, I think the word smart is the most interesting thing in these two sentences. Uh, because Cinderella's song is so quick, then it sort of goes, he's a very smart prince, he's a prince who prepares. And we, we skip over the smart part very easily, uh, especially because these princes are nearly never played as smart. They're pompous, they're cool sometimes, but they're not usually coded as intellectuals, as smart. If anything, it's the opposite. They're often played as dumb princes who lack social awareness, who lack the ability to plan, to govern. You know, I was raised to be charming, not sincere, is something that we associate with the princes, not uh, any sort of cleverness or, or abilities. So I'm actually glad that we only got this sentence because it makes us wonder, uh, what is this smartness and what's it all about? And should this prince actually be more clever than we give him credit for? I want to ask what, it's the second time Cinderella's singing about him, right? And what's the version in the first one? The first one is, he's a very nice, nice. prince. He's a very nice prince, which is also interesting, tying back to our episode about good and bad and nice, which is the witch's whole spiel, basically, <laughs> of you're not good, you're not bad, you're just nice. So I'm interested in this shift of Cinderella's from he's a very nice prince to he's a very he's a very smart prince. Well, when she says he's a very nice prince, it's in response to the baker's wife asking about what is the prince like? What's he like? And Cinderella is a bit distracted when she's answering her because she's still trying to escape. And it's, to me, kind of a generic, like, oh, he's, you know, he's a nice guy. He's fine. Nice is code for he's not good, he's not bad, he's just nice. Yes, exactly. And the equivalent being, well, he's tall, which is a hilarious <laughs> right. line. I like, love that line. Oh my God, a prince, you know, <laughs> how dreaming. She's like, well, he's tall, which is 
<laughs> like the most vanilla thing you could say about a person to describe them, right? I looked back to Cinderella first describing the ball, and I think it's interesting. She doesn't mention the princes at all. She does mention the king. She says the king is giving a festival, and I'm wondering if there's any difference between her imagination of like the royal family and the kingdom, and like the king for code to the the royal family itself, and that's the festival she wants to go to. And then she meets members that she has more of a face-to-face interaction with, and one of them is a prince, and he pursues her, and that's not kind of the the rich, powerful entity whose festival she wants to go to. Um, but rather, like, the the people underneath it who have flaws and, and who pursue her, even though she doesn't, she doesn't know if she wants to be pursued by them. I was recently reading through the script, and I discovered a line that I never knew was there because it's sort of uh, spoken underneath a bunch of other things or maybe isn't always delivered. But uh, when the two evil sisters come out to get their hair done and get ready for you know, to go to the festival, which is our second sentence, one of them says to the other, who's going to be there? Which I think is really interesting. Uh, and it connects to what you're saying, Danny, about the reason to go to the festival. And it seems to me that the sisters, and especially the evil stepmother, is very aware that the prince is going to be there. Uh, and of course, in the classic fairy tale, the point of the ball is to find the prince a new wife. And for Cinderella... It's not about that, right? It's not about the prince meeting the prince. To me, it's about inclusion, right? It's about leaving your house and seeing a world that you've never seen before and experiencing it. So this idea of immediately falling in love, getting a husband, getting married, being the queen, it's a little bit overwhelming. And there's a big difference between her desire to go to the festival, to experience a festival. That's a new thing And between this very personal thing, he's a very smart prince, he's a very nice prince, it's a whole new paradigm for her that she wasn't really expecting, I think, as opposed to the stepsisters who are locked to the target. And I think we can especially see that by the choice of calling it a festival rather than a ball, Mm -hmm. right? Lapine and Sondheim are removing Cinderella from the original fairy tale in which it's about the ball. And this festival is a new event. We don't know what's happening there. We don't know if the king is giving a festival in order to find his son a bride or just because he is a benevolent king who wants to throw his subjects a festival. And then it's really about inclusion and really about, to me, there's this hint of Maybe she would like to raise her issues with the king of disparity and her victimization by her stepmother and stepsisters, which, yeah, Ellie, I think it's very interesting that you called them the evil stepsisters and evil stepmother after our discussion. They are never uh, described as such in the show, even though they are obviously very mean. But Um, they're evil. (laughs) But are they evil or are they? Yes. Okay, fine. (laughs) I have been, I stand corrected. I mean, isn't it more interesting if they are? Of course it is. I mean, evil. We could call it the modern way, which is they're kind of bitchy uh, and mean. And being mean to your family is uncalled for. (laughs) If you're listening to this. (laughs) Don't be mean. Be nice. Uh, But I did want to say that I, I bet you that the choice to go with festival and not ball is about the rhythm of the word, right? You get Very more possibly. you get more syllables and then you can go festival and not ball. To me it's also very obviously echoing and maybe this is only me, but 
from the story of Esther, the festival, the mishte, like this idea of king throwing a festival. It ties in maybe what you were saying, Yaeli, about finding a bride for the prince or the king, or maybe what you're suggesting, Nuria, about it just being like a drunken party where the royalty shows off their money. So I just want to say that I find it interesting when we talk about her motives to go to the ball in the first act and then the I wish to go to the festival in the opening of the second act. She's in the royal house. She has all the riches. She's bored out of her mind staying in the castle and now she wishes to sponsor a festival. And why the hell does she want to sponsor a festival? Like who... Vashti classic. Va- right. So <laughs> it, it's it's like, okay, you have the wealth and now like what are you doing with it? She's like, oh, let's make a festival. Let's spend this money. Let's entertain the village. And there is one more moment that I have to mention where I think there is a parallel between these stories, which is when they come to tell her, to tell the royal family about the giant being on the loose. And the prince is completely useless for this. And there's this moment of for this moment you've come to to be in power because Cinderella is useful in that moment and she is the one who, Danny, as you were describing before with the birds, etc. Um, so I think that's just an interesting parallel. Yeah, and also she's the one who hears the baker's you know request and the baker's plea. The steward is ready to send him off on his way, but she wants to listen because she has been there. She was that peasant who wanted to be closer to royalty and to have her issues heard or to be seen by them. Included. Included, exactly. So now she is the one who is able to turn it around and to... So she's the hero? Is she the hero? (laughs) And it's nice that we open Act 2 with that scene where she's in position of power and the baker's the one coming to ask for help because he's lost everything. But by act two, everyone's stripped of their power. Everyone has nothing anymore. And she kind of goes back to where she started, having learned some lessons. But they they begin a new house, not by her paying for his house to be built, but they, she's going to work for it because that's, that's kind of what she always knew to do. And act two allows her to start again with whatever notions she learned throughout the show. Well, sometimes she actually enjoys cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> I want to bring up maybe a little bit out there, but another sort of thought that the connection between these two sentences, he's a very smart prince, and to go to the festival makes me think of, which is that, again, this idea of be careful what you wish for. She wanted to go to the festival, but once you go, it might not be so easy to come back, right? And so we have in the second sentence her desire to go to the festival. And in the first sentence, the prince is smart because he found a way to trap her. He pours pitch on the stairs, her shoes get stuck, and so she can go to the festival, but it's a little bit more tricky to go back home. And there's something about this idea of going on the journey or of having a very active wish to go somewhere where you don't necessarily know what's going to happen there. uh, And if it's going to be possible or what the, the, to come back or what the consequences are. Um, and so he's a very smart prince, uh, again, with the layers of, of subtext over subtext. It's sort of a compliment and it could be kind of like a little flirtatious 
thing where she's she has a moment to think to herself and describe him but it's also you know she's realizing as you said Noria before maybe he's a little bit malicious maybe his smartness can be used against her uh, maybe he's a person to be careful from or is this a sign of love right is pouring goo on the stairs a sign that he cares so much well he cares right it's all in the text we don't need to do any work you just have to slow it down so Listen you can hear closely so you can hear all the words but yeah um, he was smart enough and he cared enough to be active and I think passive and active characters are a big thing in into the woods in this case the prince who in act two as Danny said is useless against the giant here in the theory of capturing the damsel in distress he's very good at his job i'll give him that <laughs> this is still my favorite segment of the podcast <laughs> it's time for the three midnights trivia you'll have three multiple choice questions to answer just a reminder this is a team effort and you're not competing against each other question number one which literary witch is described as the most evil woman in creation. One, the White Witch in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. Two, Elphaba in Gregory Maguire's Wicked. Three, the Grand Witch in Royal Dahl's The Witches. Or four, Dolores Umbridge in J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter and the Order of the <laughs> Phoenix. Sorry. <laughs> what is it? The most evil woman in creation? The most evil woman in creation. I mean, like, it doesn't sound like a Harry Potter description. Well, the most evil woman does sound like something from Harry Potter that someone would say about Umbridge. And knowing Nuria, oh. this would be a cool and clever thing for her to do. But something about the word in creation very... uh, makes me think it's the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right. Yeah. Because it's such a religious text and it has to do with kind of concepts... Um, from Christianity. So I'm going to go with one, and if not, then it's the Harry Potter. And I was going to guess three, so... Well, we've covered <laughs> our bases. Well, Halal is correct. No! Uh, I will say that you completely understand my thinking, of course, and were I to be the one who decided how to describe these witches, that's what I would choose. Um, but, but she's a very smart podcast host. <laughs> so she didn't give a podcast host. Wait, what was three? Answer. So it is uh, written about as a description of the Grand Witch in Roald Dahl's The Witches. Yes, that was my third guess. <laughs> And you have a third of a point. Question number two. In the Marvel comic universe, which of the following is not a villain turned hero? One, Bucky Barnes, a.k.a. the Winter Soldier. Two, Thanos. Three, Scarlet Witch. Or four, Deadpool. I would say Thanos. Does he have a redemption arc? It's not that he has a redemption, it's that his evil to begin with is explained, like, with, like, non-ecological, with, like, sustainable reasons. So he's, like, an evil with with an asterisk. But every villain has a reason. I mean, yeah. usually it's it has to do with them being doctors of something <laughs> for some reason, which is very depressing. But uh, they all have their justifications, I think. I don't think that qualifies to me. That doesn't qualify as turned 
hero, but what was the last option? Deadpool. I don't know. Oh, turned hero. Turned Fine. hero. Yeah, turned he's definitely hero a hero. Not. He's a protagonist. I would I would go with Thanos as yeah. not qualifying for this. Correct. Yay. <laughs> yes, the rest are villains turned heroes in some form or another, um, especially in the comics. And your final question. You'll like this one, Yelly. Okay. Don Quixote de la Mancha created his own heroic character as a knight after reading too many books about chivalry. How is he finally defeated? One, the Knight of Mirrors defeats him in a battle by forcing him to admit his insanity. Two, he is knocked out by a windmill he thinks is a giant. Three, he challenges a group of friars to battle because he thinks they are holding a woman captive. The woman turns out to be an enchantress and subdues him. Or four, he is stabbed in the back by his squire, Sancho Pancha. Well, I hope it's not four. <laughs> so then it's the Knight of Mirrors. Correct. Uh, which is a very interesting concept because you can see it psychologically as, you know, the, a person is, is defeated by themselves. Um, and that kind of is echoed in other stories. If you think of the never-ending story, it also deals a lot with mirrors. Uh, Sancho Pancha would never stab him in the back. I know, that was my gift to you. You would know that wasn't That just, the the image of it was horrifying. (laughs) So sorry, no shade to Sancho. He's Uh, very loyal. And there are windmills, but... There are windmills, but he goes, that's like his first big battle. Is He goes to fight the windmills and he thinks that they are giants, which I thought was very relevant to Into the Woods as well. So thanks, guys, for coming and recording again. And we'll take this opportunity to also thank all the people who came out to audition. It was a really long and difficult process to cast this show, but we were so excited and so overwhelmed by the talent and love for the show that came pouring through the door. Yeah, everyone was amazing. And it's not an easy thing to come and sing in front of strangers. And even if people know us, it's like so stressful. But we had a great time. I mean, we got to see really talented people, you know, sing their hearts out and uh, and dance around. And it was like a really special experience. And we hope that everyone's excited about our really cool cast that will, you know, reveal very soon. Maybe we've already revealed it by the time the podcast comes out. But we've got great people that we hope will create the magic for the stage that we need Into the Woods to be. I want to add one more thing before we go, if you're still listening, which is that, you know, this was like a really maybe philosophical or there were a lot of debates going on in this episode, and I'm super curious to hear other people's opinions on all of this, on what you think about some of our devil advocates that we've said here or anything else that you have to say about the characters in the show. Um, Who is the true villain of Into the Woods? (laughs) Yeah, or even if, like, Danny said something and you're like, no, Danny, not that. (laughs) So, like, comment, tell us. (laughs) So thank you for listening to this episode of Cast Recording, a Starcatcher podcast. As Halal said, let us know what you thought about our discussion and if there's anything else you'd be interested to hear more about. You can follow the Starcatcher page on Facebook or follow Starcatcher JLM on Instagram. Thanks to Ellie Greenblatt, Halal Hanoch, and Danny Friedman for coming on the podcast. This podcast was produced and edited by Nuria Levy. See you next time for another moment in the woods. <laughs>